It's a delight to open God's Word with you today. There is power, there is grace, there is truth, there is wisdom, there is help in the words of God. And our call as pastors is to serve you as people who have come to believe the gospel and to love the God of the gospel who is also the God that speaks to us through his word and to just open these words to you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. How can you believe if no one speaks words to you? How can anyone speak words to you if no one is called to stand up and do it? Here I am, so that you might believe the gospel today and have joy in Jesus. We're preaching on the mission of God for a few months together because we fade so quickly from living with missional purpose in all the spheres of our life. So this is a reminder to us as we step into this aggressive and ambitious future of being a church planting church in greater Boston that mission needs to be at the center of our prayer, of our rhythms, of our joy, of our hearts. So we're bringing this back before you through a whole different bunches of places in Scripture, a lot of different texts. We've talked about mission being lived out in our smaller communities. We've talked about mission being lived out at home with you moms and you dads. We will talk about mission being lived out on your blocks, in your neighborhoods, in these cities as a whole, across the world. We're going to do all of that. Today, I am talking about the one place that perhaps we have the hardest time seeing how the mission of God intersects with this place, and that is with your work. It's a very natural question. Where does work fit in with the mission of God? It's very frustrating to think I spend all of these hours working 40, 50, 60, thousands, tens of thousands at the end of my life, are they just completely separated from the mission of God? Do I turn off the mission of God with my work and career and then turn it back on at night during my devotions on Sundays at church? Um, That's a struggle that we have. And so we have worked at lots of different ways as Christians to say, how does my work intersect with the mission of God? One is to say, when I go to work, I need to be an evangelist, and I need to lead with Jesus and make these two intersect. So when people say, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing great. And you know who else is doing great? Jesus is doing great. Let me sing a song for you. Jesus is the answer for the world today, and that's you. We try and wear Jesus on our sleeve and And I'm giggling about it, but that's a beautiful thing. Our heart is saying, how can I love my coworkers with the gospel of Jesus? Some of us say that work and mission don't intersect until we stick the adjective Christian on the front of our work. And so working, Allison working in a bakery is cool, but the best of all would be a Christian bakery. And Rob doing web leadership and development is great, but you know what would be even better? Christian web design company, a Christian electrician, a Christian bookstore. And again, some of that is beautiful. There are firms that are overtly Christian in their purpose. It's great. We think that may be the only way to get these two things to come together. Or for some of us, we think it's impossible for the two to intersect. And so the only way for the mission of God 
to be known in the work that I do is if the work that I do is ministry work. And so we have words like vocation and use them only for pastoral calling. Or we say full-time ministry is, is the work that intersects with the mission of God. And then yet some of us struggle with that and we don't get there and we say, well, I guess this is the best I can do. I'm going to go work and make a lot of money at my work and then I will be able to give to the mission of God. And so my work and the mission of God only intersect as I write checks to others who are doing the mission of God. Now, all of those have their right place, and we could wrestle with all of those ways of intersecting. But the question that I want to deal with you today is this. Does normal, everyday, real-world work, the kind of work that 90% of our seven-milers do day after day after day, does it please the heart of God, and does it intersect with the mission of of God. The great news is that the scriptures are beautifully clear with us that the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Your work as a web developer, a carpenter, an auditor, an attorney, a nurse, a mom, a teacher, an electrician, a social worker, a car mechanic, a lawyer, whatever else may intersect with that, that work as you do it to the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor is essential to the purposes of God being accomplished in this world. That's where I'm going to take you today. Just hear these three verses again. Dan has read them. This is Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who are working and love their work, but are struggling to see how it intersects with the mission of God. I pray that you'd be graceful to them today. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who may be working and just feel like this job is just not in any way bringing me joy or bringing God glory. I pray that you would be good to them today in helping them to think wisely through what it means to be called to work. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who are in between work and looking toward what is it that I can do to the glory of God for the good of my neighbor. I pray that these words would help them as well. I pray that among other things, Seven Mile Road would be known as a church where its men and women work hard to the glory of God in fashioning cities where the gospel can flourish. I pray that you'd be gracious to us as we sit under your word this morning. Hear my prayer, spirit, and answer. Amen. Okay, I'm going to work through two foundational things about a biblical view of work and then try and apply them to us. That's what we're going to do together today. The first word that I want to use is the word calling. As creatures created in the image of the Trinitarian God, we are called to work. 
I don't know if you know this or not, but Scripture begins talking about work as soon as it begins talking about anything right away. That's how important and basic work is to the intentions of God. As soon as the Scriptures start, work is right there. Genesis describes God's creation of the world as work. Yes, this magnificent project of cosmos invention happens in the rhythms of a regular work week. God works and works and works and works and works and works and rests. In other words, in the beginning, God, the divine God, broke a sweat and got his hands dirty and went to work. The high point of this work was the creation of man in his image. And when man is created, what do we find him doing immediately, right off the bat? It's no surprise. Created in the image of the working, laboring, tending, creating, building God, man was created to work. And Scripture pronounces all of this as what? What's the adjective? Good. Work is good. Now, this is very different than, for example, Greek accounts of creation. Greek accounts, for example, imagine that there is the successive ages of mankind all emanating from this one golden age at the beginning. And in this golden age at the beginning, humans and gods lived on the earth together in harmony and nobody worked. Nobody worked. The world just was a paradise where food just appeared. Water just appeared in abundance. And the spirit life, the mind life, your hands pristine was what we were created for. Humans had to toil after. And the gods certainly were not working in the beginning. That is not the story of the Scriptures. In Genesis, in the beginning, God is at work, and man created in his image is created to work as well. Scripture says it like this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You could say it like this, God didn't put Adam on a beach or in a basement, he put him in a garden. What do you do on a beach? Nothing. You sit there. You lay there. That's where we get the word beach bum, right? If it's a real good beach and you've paid some money to be there, you don't even need to reach into your cooler to pull out a Gatorade to drink. People come to you and bring you the drinks that you asked for in cups with umbrellas. You just sit on the beach. Now, according to Grace, this is paradise. This was what should have been in the beginning. And God placed Adam on a beach. But that's not what we read, is it? Adam was not placed on a beach. What about a basement? What do you do in a basement? I'm talking about an American version of a basement with a couch and a big screen TV. Nothing. You just sit there and you watch sports and you watch movies and you eat chicken wings and nachos. And you 
dig into that couch because you are not moving. Now, according to two-thirds of the dudes in the room, that is paradise right there. And they're expecting to go to Genesis and see all things before sin. And Adam was placed in a man cave with a remote control to just sit there. That's not what we get, is it? Adam was placed where? In a garden. What do you do in a garden? You work. You dig. You shovel. You plant. You study. You examine. You prune. You tend. You organize. Do you feel this? Work was not a necessary evil that comes into the picture after sin. Work was not something that humans were created to do but was beneath the living God. Work is central to who God is, and so work is central to who we are. We are called to work, and I mean normal, everyday work. I know that as Christians, when you hear me use that word called in connection with your day job, ordinary, worldly, secular, non-church, normal work, you go, wait a minute, time out. Did you just misspeak, Pastor Matt? Doesn't that word called, that word called, only apply to, you know, spiritual work, pastoral work, evangelism, missions? Accountants and bus drivers and plumbers and teachers and mothers and doctors and lawyers, they're not called to their work, right? Wrong. I am talking about all work. All work that is not inherently sinful in itself is a calling from God. All right, let me spend some time there because it got quiet in here. So I think we might need to spend some time right there. I read a story this week. It's a good example. Stu was listening to Christian radio, and they were interviewing a Christian music pop star. And he was telling the world this story about how his little brother, who was once a truck driver, gave up truck driving in order to serve the Lord as an assistant pastor. Now, all else equal, that is a beautiful, fine story. God does this. He calls some of us to serve his church as pastors. It's a beautiful thing. Except for this. The host began laughing at the comparative insignificance of truck driving when put up against assistant pastoring. And then the Christian pop music star drove the nail in the coffin of this and said it like this. Yeah, I told my little brother, I always knew you had more in you than just being a truck driver. There are hundreds of thousands of truck drivers in these United States. What's going on there? What's going on is this promotion of this lie that if you are really going to please God, that can only get done in a certain kind of work, ministry work. Ministry is a calling, and non-ministry If it's not a curse, it's certainly not a calling. It is something that is second best. 
It is something that is lesser. It is something for all the rest of us who don't get the real call from God. It's something that you settle for if the Father doesn't have something better in mind for you. But then we come to the Scriptures, and we just do not see that. I could press this with you from Genesis. Adam was a gardener to the glory of God. I could press this with you from the Gospels. Jesus was a carpenter to the glory of his Father. What I'm going to do is press this with you from the text that Dan read, 1 Corinthians 7. We've read it up on the board. In this text, Paul is writing to some folks who had suddenly and surprisingly and beautifully become Christians out of a totally non-Christian background. You know how God does this in his grace for us. We hear the gospel Our eyes are finally opened. We finally wake up from our slumber. We see the glory of God and the grace of God and the supremacy of Christ, and everything is changed for us. We are born again. We are Christ followers now, sons and daughters of God. And one of the normal questions that you ask in that season of your life is, hey, if the gospel has changed everything in my soul and my story, what else needs to change in my life, if I am going to please the one who has saved me. And in this section of the letter to these new Christians, Jesus' apostle Paul is writing to them about some things that don't need to change. You with me? There are a lot of things that do. He is writing about some things that, that are okay as they are. For example, your marital state, okay? He says, if you are married... You can stay married and please God. This is the text of Scripture where he says, if you are married to someone who is not believing the gospel, you can stay married to the glory of God. You can please God right there. And also he writes here that if you are single, it's actually fantastic. You can please God as a single person. There's not some better category for when you get married. You can please God in your marital state. He writes about circumcision, which is strange sounding to us, but it was a big deal in that day for him to say, if you're circumcised, great, you can please God right there. You don't have to hide that. If you're not, don't worry about it. You don't need that mark of the flesh anymore. You've been circumcised in your heart. You can please God exactly as he saved you. And then he talks about social station, occupation, what you're doing. And he says, if you find yourself now as a slave in a Roman home, that's okay. Go ahead and pursue your freedom if you can get it. Did you hear that in there? I'm not holding you back from that. But don't think that you cannot please God remaining a servant in that home. If you are a freed man doing work as a free person, You can stay right there and please God. The same goes for work, for occupation. Whatever you're doing, whether you are slave or you are free, if you're a carpenter or a tent maker or a centurion or a teacher or whatever, when God saved you, you can please God right there. Why does he say this? 
Because God has called you to that work, that station, that life. In fact, he actually uses that religiously freighted word of called. Here's how he says it. We read it. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That word called is that Greek word kaleo. It's used in a host of different beautiful ways. It's used of God calling you to repent of your sin and take hold of the kingdom of God. It's used of God calling ministers to declare his message. It's used of God calling us out of darkness into the community of light. And in this text, Paul uses the same word, kaleo, called, and he is tying it to common, social, economic tasks, jobs. He names them God's assignment, God's calling. What's the implication? In the same way that God equips and assigns and calls some Christians for the building up the body of Christ, He calls Christians for the building up of His world and the human community. He calls you to work. In other words, despite what happened on that radio show, you can please God as much as a truck driver as you can as an assistant pastor. They are both God-honoring, God-pleasing callings. This exalted biblical doctrine of day job work was one of the places that the reformers pressed really hard on because it was a battle in their day. Um, If you take that little truck driver comment and you raise it to about the hundredth power, that's what it was like in the day of the reformers. The church, the only one that there was at the time, we now refer to it as the Roman Catholic Church, the church saw itself as the entirety of the kingdom of God. And so they insisted that the only work that really counted and really pleased God, the only ones who were in God's service were the bishops and the pope and priests and monks and nuns. They had a word for this. They called it the spiritual estate. Ooh, can you feel that right there? Our word is full-time ministry. Now, the spiritual state is a beautiful thing unless it is exalted above others. And that's what they did. In fact, they labeled the work that most of you do the temporal estate. Can you feel that? Like there's a time limit to this ridiculous work. But this spiritual work really pleases God. Do you see the hierarchy? Okay. Martin Luther, having read 1 Corinthians 7 in that verse, tells us how he feels about that. This is what he writes. It is pure invention that Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. This indeed is a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. I love the reformers because they pull no punches. Yet no one need be intimidated by it 
and that for this reason. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. Okay, this is money. This is really helpful. In other words, yes, ministers are awesome and valuable and God-honoring in their calling to serve the church in an official capacity. That's beautiful. But they are no more pleasing to God. They are no better than Bobby Lunchbucket if he does his work to the glory of God. Okay. Now, you may not have heard that clearly enough from this pulpit in the 10 years that I have been pastoring. And so this is a place that I have been longing to be able to repent to you of for six months that I've known I was finally going to get to preach on mission and work. One of the ways that I have referred to the work that I do outside of this pulpit is as my day job. And in getting my heart ready to preach to you today and sitting under the power of these texts of Scripture, I have come to see that referring to it that way is giving it a connotation that has not been good for me to give to those that God has given me care of. In other words, the the feeling is, yeah, that's my day job, and that's lesser work, but it enables me to do this work of church planting. This is the real work. Okay, I'm sorry about the phrasing of things in that way because it's just not true. If I've given you the impression that a day job is down here and is only good in that it provides the ability to do this, that is not the clear teaching of Scripture. I need us to see that all sorts of day jobs are the calling of the Father. Say it like this. If all I did was CFO work, God could be totally pleased in me. Drawing that distinction is not biblical. All of our work is a calling from God. All right, so hold on to calling over here. Now let me give you the second one. The second thing about a God-centered view of work that it presses is this. It's alliteration. This might be helpful to remember. Common good. Common good. Good work, biblical work, is it's not only God-oriented in responding to his call and how he shaped you. It is also others-oriented. Okay, now this is always true about everything in, in the gospel, right? Whatever goes up to God always overflows to others. The vertical always kicks into the horizontal. The first command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And the second is like it. And what is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. So that reality is played out in all of the gospel. God overflowing the banks to others. And it is played out in work. Um, work is an act of love, not only to God, but to your neighbor. We could sit right there for an hour. Work is a way to serve others. Work is a way to see to it that the world that they live in is a safe and healthy and orderly and helpful and functional place. Work in service to others creates an environment 
where the gospel of God can flourish. Say it like this. When you leave this place and you work really well, whatever your work is, God is doing His providential work of sustaining the world through you. And so this is where God's mission and whatever your day job is, your work, intersect so beautifully. Psalm 147, this is the one that we opened with. This is the one that I reread. This will help us a lot right here. This is at the back of the book of Psalms. Those last nine or ten are just psalms of praise to God. In this psalm, you are being called to worship God for the things that he does. Over and over and over again, he lists out God's work, and then he says, praise him for that work. So we praise God for who he is. That's enough for us to sing for a couple of billion ages. Then we can praise God for what he does. There's another few billion ages that we can bounce back and forth between those two. Psalm 147 is getting you ready for that. This psalm is also speaking to people in a particular way. He's not just calling an individual to praise God, but if you listen to it, he's calling an entire city to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. Jerusalem, the city of God, in the Older Covenant, at the time of the writing of this psalm, was also the center of the mission of God. Okay, this is Older Covenant stuff. Jerusalem was the place where the nations would come to repent and believe and have their sins atoned for and learn and observe and worship the living God. This city was the epicenter of the mission of God. Now, what is, therefore, the first kind of work that you would expect us to be compelled to praise God for that is done in this city? What's the first kind of work that you think of? It's ministry work. It's gospel work. It's preaching work. It's missionary work. You're expecting to read in this psalm, praise the Lord, because he called priests to their office of sacrificing for you. Praise the Lord, because he gave you the Torah and rabbis to teach it to you. Praise the Lord, because he accepts the sacrifices that you make. And we can absolutely sing and shout and tambourine that up and praise the Lord for those things. But this text, and I'm just going to do verses 13 and 14, also lists some other kind of things that the city should praise God for. Hear them with me again. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. Okay, let's take these one by one. He strengthens the bars of your gates. Huh. So we are called to praise the Lord here because he does the work of protecting the city. Is that work essential 
to the mission of God being accomplished in Jerusalem? Yes, absolutely. Is there any mission getting done in the city of Jerusalem if those gates are not protected and barred really well? No. Marauders and raiders will come in. There'll be no safety. There'll be no comfort, calm, security. You won't be able to worship God because you'll be looking over your shoulders, uncertain about what's going to come through those open, unsafe gates. The work of protecting the city is the work of God for the accomplishing of his mission. Now, here is the giant question of the day. How does God strengthen the bars of the gates of Jerusalem? How does he do this work that is part of accomplishing his mission? By lots of everyday, normal, temporal estate, day job workers doing a great job at their work. In this case, it was real gates and real bars. So he used carpenters and architects and masons. Do you feel that? God strengthened the bars of the gates. And who did he need to get that work done for the good of his mission? He needed a mason. He needed a carpenter. In our day, he uses computer engineers who are working on high-tech security systems and weapons manufacturers and police officers to bring security to a city. God does that work. In other words, God's, God enables mission to happen in a city by caring for that city's civic needs, and he does it through the work of those that he calls to the work. <laughs> All right, next one. He blesses your children within you. Is that essential to the mission of God? Yeah, we talked about that last week, right? Thank the Father that he blessed Miles and Wesley and Timmy when they were still inside Patty, right? He does that work. Now, how did he do that? Some of it is supernatural and mystical, right? Knitting us together in our mother's wombs. But how else does God do this? We visited Dave and Katie Symington in the hospital yesterday. Baby was born a month early. They named her Harper, but you're all going to call her Hapa. His little Hapa, Symington, little baby girl. How did God care for that baby in Katie's womb? Doctors, pharmaceutical companies, chemists, nutritionists, Lamaze class teachers, Musicians who recorded the music that she played through her, I was going to say Walkman, but that was going back to the 80s, her iPod and put on the bait. That baby was blessed by listening to that music in the womb. Where did that music come from? How did God begin to shape the soul of that child with that praise music that Katie played? Musicians doing their work well. Recording technicians. Do you feel this? The mission of God accomplished through a whole bunch of people doing everyday work. He makes peace in your borders. Same thing, lawmakers, governors, politicians doing their work. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. Is that essential to the mission of God? Yes, absolutely. 
for a city to have a good water and food supply is necessary for us to function and live, to be discipled and to gospel others. And how does God give us our daily bread? Bakers, farmers, retailers, website programmers who put up that stop and shop peapod thing to get that food to your house, operations managers, and who else does God use to see to it that you are filled with the finest of wheat? Come on. Truck drivers. You guys feel that? To the glory of God, for the good of God's purposes in the world, we need truck drivers. Luther called day jobs the masks of God behind which he conceals himself in the doing of all things. He was in the uh, 1500s, whatever, so he said, God milks the cows through the hands of the milkmaids. That's it right there. In other words, you have to feel this. Your job is God at work for the good of God's world, for the good of your neighbor, for the good of these cities so that the gospel has some space that it can flourish. Now, for us, this is no longer about a single city in Jerusalem. The New Covenant mission is outward instead of inward. But this still holds true for all the cities of the world. For example, in order for the gospel to go forth in Melrose, Malden, Bostonia, in order for this to remain a civilized place, in order for the lights to go on in here, for this whole deal to function, for churches to be planted, for people to be discipled. Bostonia needs hundreds of thousands of Christians doing ordinary, everyday work for the common good. Can you see now that a truck driver's work is just as important to the mission of God being accomplished as an assistant pastor's work is? They are both very important valuable. All right, so in summary, a God-centered view of your work makes your work beautiful as you begin to see it as a calling to serve the common good so that the gospel can flourish in our cities. All right, two implications, then we'll wrap this up. The first one is this. Uh, As you think about your work, I want you to think in terms of calling and common good, okay? Calling is the question of, who has the Father made me? How has he wired me? What gets my heart racing? What am I just really good at? What would I enjoy doing? How can I please God and take who he's made me and do something great with it? I am called to a vocation vocation, calling. And I want you to think in terms of common good. Where can I join with God in his work of fashioning a world and a city where the gospel can flourish? Now, these are very different questions than you have ever asked about your work. You're a Bostonian American. What's the first question you ask about your work? How much does it pay? How much money do I make? How wealthy do I get? Is that a man-centered or a God-centered view of work? 
boom, that's putting me in the center. What's the other question that you ask about your work as a Bostonian? Very ambitious here, right? What kind of status does this work get me? What kind of accomplishments will I have on my resume? Will this work make much of me? We tie our identity to our work. That is not a biblical, God-centered view of work question. That is about you. I am saying, make your work about God and others. What am I called to, and how can I do it to the glory of God in serving my neighbors? What work can I do would answer God's calling and benefit those around me? If you're there, praise God. Rest in that, and don't feel for a second like you're doing something second best. If you are in one of those jobs that's not the greatest of jobs, this still applies to you. How many people have been or are in one of those jobs that's not exactly a calling and you're not sure how this is helping anybody? Turn your heart to seeing it in those ways. I'll give you an example. I worked at something called the Copyright Clearance Center. I don't even know if it exists anymore, but it was a few months for me in a cubicle. That's not good right there. I wasn't called to be in a cubicle, at least not the nine-hour days I was doing there. And this job was about making sure that schools, professors like Gordon who were using copyrighted material were able to use it legally, and the people who wrote the materials were getting their uh, royalties for it, okay? Now, I went in as a young punk without a good Jesus view of Scripture and work, and I was just not good at that work, and my heart wasn't in it. What I should have done is said... Father, I'm here right now. I know I'm probably on my way to somewhere else. But today, in this cubicle, how can I see this as a calling from you? And how have you shaped me to do this really, really well? In that case, it would be control freak, type A, neat nick work. Do that to the glory of God. And can you turn my heart to come to this cubicle and be loving the author's who have worked so hard to write these things and now reap the benefit of their work? And can you turn my heart to loving the professors and the students who will be benefiting from these poems and these novels and these works of nonfiction so that if I can bridge the gap from writer to professor and student, something good will be done through my work. I am loving others in this cubicle. You see how this changes everything? If you're in your sweet spot of work and that's your career, man, there is life there. But even if you are in jobs that are not there yet, you can have joy. God can have glory. Your neighbor can be served and loved. And obviously some of you guys who are totally between work go into this thought process prayerfully saying, Father, who have you made me? And how can who you've made me be used to serve the common good and create space for the gospel to flourish. For some of you, that will be full-time ministry. Great. We love that. God has called you to it. There is a need for it. The two mesh. You do it to glory of God. For many of you, it will be some other kind of work. It's beautiful. Do it to the glory of God. And then the last implication is this. It should be obvious. If everything that I've said is true, whatever you do, go do 
do that really well. How can you not? If it's an issue of love for God and love for neighbor, how could you be dishonest, sneaky, shoddy, lazy? That would make no sense at all. Christians should be the best at their trade, at their work. Of anyone on this planet, we should be the best at it. We should take it the most seriously. We should give it the most effort. Our hearts should be fully in doing that well because it's a calling to serve the common good. I wrote this note to myself this week when this was finally all written up, and I said, Cruz, why don't you ask people when you are discipling them how they are doing at work? That is a legitimate gospel question. Here's what I mean. We think when we're discipling someone, the questions that you'll ask in soul care, if you love them or whatever, things like, have you been reading your Bible? Have you been spending time in prayer? Have you been fulfilling your station as father or mother really well? How are you doing with your areas of temptation and sinfulness? You know what another totally great, legitimate discipleship gospel question is? How are you doing with your work? If you're discipling Dave Symington, how were the doors that you put on hinges this week? Man, were they perfectly straight? Did you do that as well as you could? If you're discipling Katie, say, hey, how are you caring for those patients? Is your heart in that work? Are you serving them in love and God in love as you do this? Gordon, how's your teaching going? Fran, how's your auditing? You guys feel this? That's a legitimate gospel issue for you as a worker. You're not allowed to be shoddy at work. You do this work as unto God in love for your neighbor. Seven Mile Road should be filled with the best workers that they are. All right, if we're going to get there, we need the gospel to set us free from all of the sinfulness that surrounds work, okay? Some of you need to repent from putting yourself at the center of your work and saying, this is about how much money it makes me. This is about me being a success in life. This is about how many letters come at the end of my name or what website I pop up on or I have made much of me through my work. God cannot receive that work as worship and praise. Some of you have your identity completely wrapped up in how much money you make at work and how quickly you are advancing at work. You are not what you do. Work is a horrible place to attach your identity. In believing the gospel that God loves you exactly as you are. He saves you to make you holy. He accepts you because he chooses to, not because you're great at your work. Now you are set free finally to say, let me do this work as you have called me to it. Let me do this work with a God focus and an others focus. We would light up this world if we lived that way. This church would be healthier. This church would have more money to spend because the echo effect of you being amazing at your day job work and generous with your money is the ability to do the official ministry of God here. All of that will change as you repent and believe the gospel and give your work life over to God and neighbor. I'm going to pray that for you. Pray that God does it.
Father, I pray that you would forgive me first in this room of minimizing day job work in any way and that you would root that out of the consciousness of Seven Mile Road today. I thank you that you have called people in this room to all different vocations and occupations. I pray that we would not lock our identity in them. And as we are free to not lock our identity in that work, we would actually begin to enjoy it and to do it well and to do it for your glory and to do it for the good of our neighbors. I pray, Spirit, for those who are in between work, that you would be gracious to match calling and common good for their joy. I pray for those who are on their way to better work, that when they go to work on Monday, they would do it as a calling in love for you and their neighbor. I pray for those who have found a spot where they can be helpful and useful to the kingdom of God and to the cities around Boston. I pray that they would have peace and joy and vigor and energy and that as they love you and love their neighbor, your work in this world would be accomplished. Thank you for ordaining things to be this way. Help us fall in line with them. I pray that you do it. Jesus, I rejoice that most of the time that you were here, you were just a carpenter swinging a hammer to the glory of God. And I also rejoice that the work that you saw the Father doing, you took up for yourself, and you gave your life, and you labored, and you taught, and you healed, and you preached, and you loved, and then you died, and that it is your work done on a cross that has given us life We rejoice in the work that you have done for us. We don't miss it today. Hear my prayer and answer. Amen.